Okay. Dean, do you want to intro us or do you want me to? Uh, why don't, why don't you go ahead? Right. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm lifting up female voices. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Listening Party on CFRC 101.9 FM and podcasted now, which is super exciting. Wow. And also syndicated out across Canada. We're moving on up. Oh my folks. gosh, we're moving on up. Uh, so this is our, our our new show, kind of new. We're kind of, we're on episode four, I think now. And the main point of the show is that we get together with all of our coolest friends and listen to an album. And then we, you know pretend we're smart and talk about that album as if we're experts on music and you get to listen and hopefully and not yeah. think that we're wrong no we have the correct opinions and you get to hear what those correct opinions are yeah. lucky you honestly <laughs> so uh if you've been if you've been listening along with us uh the past past like four episodes all of the episodes up until now uh it's been dean Steph, myself, uh, Frankie, and Chancellor. However, Frankie and Chancellor are not not feeling too hot today. So uh, they stayed home because that's what you do these days when you're not feeling too well, just in case. So we have two guests on instead, and we're super excited to bring these new opinions to you. We've got, first off, uh, you know Matt, who also works at CFRC. He's going to be joining in on the discussion. Hello, everyone. Yeah, and then... Uh, the the most exciting guest today because they brought the album is our good friend JR. Hello Radioland and CFRC listeners. Good to be here. Welcome. So uh JR, do you want to intro the album that you chose and tell us a little bit about it and why you chose it? Sure. This this feels a little self-indulgent because I've on my most of my life I've been a huge Nirvana fan. So I was chatting with Dean online and I was asking about the podcast and then he suggested if you have an album you want to bring suggest it. So I suggested Nirvana's Incesticide. And as way of intro, I guess I can only speak to like why I thought this would be a good idea. It was kind of a a last minute decision. I just blurted it out. But the reason probably why I was thinking of it is it is a unique album in Nirvana's discography. So most people, when they think of the band, they think of Smells Like Teen Spirit. They think of the big radio hits. And they had two um, before Kurt Cobain's death, They had two major label albums, Nevermind released in 91 and In Utero released in 93. But in between those major label releases, they had an album of like B-sides, rarities, (laughs) and um, like radio sessions. And so they wanted to put something out that was a little more gritty, a little more raw, and they wanted to get ahead of the bootleggers um, and uh, sort of just put something out that's different. So I chose this album because it's an album that most people don't know. And the second reason why is it reflects the kind of diversity um, in music of the band. So most people think of Nirvana, they think of these kind of catchy but loud, grungy riffs. Uh, but there's, I think, more to it. This album has a little bit, little hint of uh, new wave, a little um, hint of like art rock, a little Sonic Youth influence. So I just think it's a weird, strange, mostly unknown um, soundscape that the that the band sort of puts out uh, in between their their major label releases. So as a fan. I think it's a super cool album. It also has my favorite song by the band on it. And 
So I just wanted to see, I'm actually interested to hear your opinions of it because I've been so engrossed in Nirvana for 30 years that, uh, or almost 30 years that I, I sort of have a weird skewed view of the band. So Nice. Yeah. I think, uh, prior to us starting, we, we were saying on our end that, uh, I, th- I think at least Dean and I, uh, aren't super familiar with Nirvana. So this will be pretty exciting for us to dive in a little bit more. Um, especially because I think that Nirvana has such, uh, you know, cult following name, right? Um, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, I, I was joking with Dean that, you know, after, you know, if you were born after like 93, maybe even 1990, you probably aren't as big of a fan as Nirvana. And then maybe if you were like born after 2000, you like maybe got into them as more of a nostalgia thing. Um, And of course, like me and Dean, especially, uh, I don't know about you, but um, I can talk about it briefly. Yeah, but we're we're kind of right in that smack dab middle of, you know, missing the Nirvana boat a little bit. So this will be fun. What about you, Matt? So I was born in 92, but I've always been fascinated with music from the past. Uh, I which is very typical, I think, for a lot of people, especially if you're a, a rock music fan. Uh, <laughs> in high school and late elementary school, I was really into classic rock. And I also had a like a pop punk phase where it was like everything, you know, oh, all those pop, pop punk boy bands that were really big, like <laughs> Blink-182, Sum 41, oh, Green I'm, Day. A side note, I embarrassingly, uh, the other day, someone posted like a throwback to that song by a day to remember that was like massive <laughs> back in like i would say like what 2008 2009 oh yeah. i forgot about them too but i i listened to it i was like oh yeah this brings me back um <laughs> going back off of being brought back i do remember some songs as like a really young kid my long-term memory is crazy good unlike my short-term memory for some reason <laughs> and i remember hearing songs like black hole sun and stuff like several Pearl Jam songs, Black being one of them, a mm-hmm. um, uh, whole bunch of Nirvana songs as well. And in high school, I got really into 90s grunge scene and even like late 80s. And uh, my favorite band from that era, and I still adore them, is Soundgarden. So I have always been somewhat of a casual Nirvana fan, um, especially I think was it Guitar Hero 2 had a heart-shaped <laughs> box on it. And that oh, yeah. kind of got me, Guitar Hero 2 got me into a whole bunch of bands that I knew of, but I wasn't, you know, super knowledgeable about them. And I'm aware that Nirvana only has three LPs that are like proper LPs where they sat down, wrote and recorded and, you know, produced it. And then this is a, as uh, JR was saying, this is a compilation album that has all, like, already had a whole bunch of bootlegs out uh, amongst the fan community and it's yeah it's way grittier than uh, either of the lps that it was stuck in between as far as release goes and it, it kind of it reminds me and i'm sure a lot of other people like what the grunge scene the seattle grunge scene was all about and it was a reaction to like hair metal and not liking that pretty much and yeah. that's a great way to sum it up yeah there was a real punk rock i think kurt used to say that his music has a punk rock ethic with a pop sensibility so reacting against that kind of glam hair metal something gritty or something more like musical freedom i think they used to throw around that phrase a lot in the 90s but also something catchy that you can 
you can get into. And even on this album, when it's grittier and weird, there's still some catchy stuff in there, right? So, Something that I noticed uh, I, when I was doing my research prepping for this, um, I was looking up, there's like a little blurb about their name, and I thought it was really interesting that apparently uh, Kurt Cobain picked Nirvana as kind of like a rejection of those ultra grungy names. Hmm. Um, and he wanted something like a little more peaceful and mellow. Um, and then as part of this, I also read that they had gone under like three different names prior to this, which are the complete opposites. <laughs> they are Skid Row, oh, Fecal yeah. Matter, and Ted Ed Fred, <laughs> which is great. I didn't know about Fecal Matter. <laughs> yeah, that one's good, right? That's yeah. pretty blunt. Um, but anyway, so I guess when they decided to change their name, turns out there was a, a British psych rock band under the same name at the time. So obviously like they went into court dealt with it whatever happened happened it all went over relatively smoothly from you know i think what i've heard uh but anyway then the british Rock band ended up coming out with an album called nirvana covers nirvana or nirvana sings nirvana nice. which i thought was pretty funny that's very good yeah, that's my little fun fact for the day i'm just glad in in the 90s i don't know if you remember the, the band bush but they had a name problem in canada where they had to go by bush x and so uh, there was a great Much Music interview where the uh, v- VJs were calling them Bush X and they were getting annoyed, being like, we're Bush, we're Bush. <laughs> it's like legal, legally in Canada, oh, they yeah. couldn't be known by Bush. Well, even then you get into like DFA, yeah. you know, Death From Above has Very been recently. Death From Above 1979 and yeah. then they changed it to Death From Above and then uh-huh. didn't they like just go back to Death From Above 1979 so. again? Wow. Yeah, all because they couldn't get the naming rights. <laughs> oh, my God. I thought they did, and then they were just like, screw it. Yeah, they're like, well, now everybody knows this is DFA 1979. Yeah. So, yeah. That was only a couple of years ago, I think, they finally did that, and then they were like, yeah, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, names in, names in, in uh, pop and rock music. There's, you know, Billy Talent went through the same thing when they were, oh, what was it? Was it something with a P or Watouche? Or, I don't remember. But they weren't called Billy Talent originally. They had yeah. it was this exact same idea with with Nirvana. Uh, another band had it, and uh, they had to rename themselves because someone else already had it licensed. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's funny that uh, like Kurt um, wanted to sort of askew the the sort of grosser, yeah, grittier you're on a first name basis with them now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, me and Kurt. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, he wanted to askew like the grittier, grungier names when like all of the song, well, maybe not all of it, but like a lot of a lot. like Nirvana tracks are really like, you know, ugly and cynical and violent. Yeah. Uh, so like the, the, the sort of negative specter still hangs over that band. Like that's still what they're about, but just not in name. Mm-hmm. And like, I like to think, and this might be a little romanticizing, that's probably everything I'm going to say today is probably romanticizing the band. But, um, you know, Nirvana is like, Kurt was into to Buddhism. And as I understand, the definition is kind of like perfect bliss, right? Nirvana. So I think there's like something he was striving for maybe uh, in the music, regardless of how heavy or how gritty a lot of it was. And so he's, I think he was reaching maybe, maybe for something with that name, but Oh, for sure. Don't think well, he found it, but yeah, that's the that's the thing that makes it even you know more disheartening, right? Thinking about that is you know understanding, especially you know the last year or two of Kurt Cobain's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like that. Like uh, my Nirvana phase when I was in high school was mostly centered around Cobain and his suicide. Sure. And like I I rem- I would read through all these forums like 
uh, trying to piece together conspiracy theories about what actually happened and all of these things. Uh, and yeah, that was, that was huge. The, yeah. I remember when it, ha- I was 13 when he died and my brother was a huge fan. He imparted all of the sort of knowledge and Nirvana on me. And then that's like seeing that explosion because they were, they were the biggest band in the world in 1991. Mm-hmm. But then after he died and the unplugged came out, it just exploded again. It was an unbelievable sort of peak and trough uh, happening. But then, like you said, all of the conspiracy theories, there were books written, like, yeah. All of the, the, you know, this is kind of pre-internet for me. So it was like all of the magazines, Circus Magazine, Kerrang, all of the big like rock magazines were just full of articles about it. It was like looking back, it's really strange. A lot of it was rooted in like, really rooted in like sexist BS around Courtney Love. Yeah. Right? And like yeah. to see it now is like, oh my God. Should like, we jump into this album now? This this album, which like I agree with you, this is probably the most interesting album to choose. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because like Nirvana, as you said, was the biggest band of all time, of that time at least. Mm-hmm. Like no one could touch them. And then the year after they released their like massive breakout uh, album, they put out this instead of just throwing together something uh, quick that probably would have sold better yeah. and done well but no they put together these b-sides and radio sessions yeah these tasty little treats yeah i'd be interested to to know what songs sort of stuck up for you or what ones maybe you didn't like that you want to that you'd want to talk about i'm happy to choose but <laughs> yeah well um i can start off the discussion because i think something that i struggled with with this album and i think that's just because i didn't grow up in this time period um was that i did find i think that I just don't have such a connection with grunge music in general um, so that I definitely enjoyed listening to it, but it wasn't something that I was like, okay, like I want to sit down and dive deep into what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that I'm more fascinated with just like the story and the history of Nirvana in general, as well as just like the grunge movement on its own. Um, Whereas getting into the individual songs is less of a, a point for me because I did personally find them like a little bit repetitive at times. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, there was a few songs I did really like that stuck out to me. One of which, um, and this might be a unique twist, is the last song on the album, which was Aneurysm. Yeah. Uh, I definitely thought that was the most sonically enjoyable for me. And I definitely got that into that one the most. It gives me great pleasure to hear you say that. It's my favorite Nirvana <laughs> song of all time. And it's often really? referred... You know, it's kind of a, a, a B-side that fell off the tracks and didn't make it on an album. But like a lot of uh, music commentators have said this is one of their greatest songs, if not the greatest song. Um, lyrically, it's probably not the best in my opinion. I think Kurt was a great lyricist in his song like Heart Shaped Box, which was huge. I think it's better lyrically, but sonically, I think it's the epitome of what I like in rock music. There's some moments in there where the, the rhythm section especially is like rumbling and it's just, it's beauty to me. So I love that you, you picked that. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, and like uh, an interesting thing about this record that I I found is um, like throughout all all of the tracks on this record, there are five different drummers because like they're all like all of these (laughs) pulled from different times, right? Yeah, 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 which is wild. So I don't even know. I don't even know if Dave Roll is on this one. He is. He's on it. Yeah, he's drumming on aneurysm, and they had a uh, you know their first album in 1989 was Bleach, and they had a drummer called Chad Channing, who's great. But he didn't really fit with the band, and when he left, and the band was on tour, they did a couple of tours of uh, Europe, I think, and a tour of the U.S., they had to get drummers to fill in. So they had a guy named Dale Crover, who's from the Melvins. The Melvins are kind of a, I guess you'd call them a punk, but quasi-metal band from Aberdeen, which is where Kurt and Chris Novoselic from Nirvana are from. They were sort Mm -hmm. of protégés of the Melvins. 
So their drummer, Dale Crover, drummed on a couple tracks, and then a guy named Danny Peters, who folks might know as the drummer from Mudhoney, another grunge band from Seattle, also drummed with them. So you'll see it's Chad Channing on some tracks, Dale Crover, Danny Peters, and then Dave Grohl on, a, on a, one of the sessions as well, including aneurysm. Hmm. From uh, the Seattle scene, you're, it, I think it was very common at different eras for uh, members of one band to record projects or even full albums with other bands. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot, a lot of crossover between the big names and even the smaller names from Seattle at that time. That's a good point, man. Like uh, Soundgarden went, got together with some Pearl Jam guys and they did the uh, Temple of the Dog. Um, yeah, a tribute to, I can't remember the, f- the fellow that passed away, but he was oh, a, yeah. a roommate of uh, Cornell's at one point. And they had another band that was coming out and just about to debut. And on the debut of that album, he passed away. And that's what that Temple of the Dog was a tribute to him. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, projects. Uh, I know Mud Honey and Alice in Chains worked together on a couple things. Oh, yeah. Mad Season, man. Yeah. yeah. They have a couple of good tunes. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. 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 It's just crazy to see the amount of crossover, especially even after they were already big. Matt Cameron from Soundgarden ended up going to play with Pearl Jam after the fact. Um, you know, even the Chili Peppers have a little bit of a, what's the word I'm looking for, of a family tree there yeah, as well that's from true. that whole era. Hmm. So, uh, JR, you mentioned uh, how this song maybe isn't their best lyrically. Uh, and, like, back w- again when I was in high school and was obsessing over the life of Kurt Cobain, mm-hmm. I, li- I, I really liked him as, like, you know, this sort of, like, poetic spirit uh, mm-hmm. who, like, you know, uh, had all these beautiful things that he wanted to say. Uh, and in researching this episode, I came across a quote that really took the wind out of my sails <laughs> a little bit. Uh, he said, uh, when I write a song, the lyrics are the least important subject. I can go through two or three uh, different subjects in a song, and the title can mean absolutely nothing at all. Uh, and then he also said, uh, he doesn't give a flying F what the lyrics on Bleach were about, figuring, let's just scream some negative lyrics, and as long as they're not sexist and don't get too embarrassing, it'll be okay. This hmm. broke my heart. You know, I, I, I like that, and he constantly would talk about this. There's a great uh, behind-the-scenes um, about uh, recording Nevermind with Butch Vig, who was the producer, also the drummer from Garbage. And he was talking about how Kurt would say it was just garble coming out. But I like that because regardless of whether it get, there's forethought into the crafting of them or, or whether it just comes out, it doesn't matter to me because he's painting these these weird, uh, beautiful pictures with his words. And so, and I think he's kind of BSing a little bit. I have yeah. this suspicion that he they mean more than that because when you listen and then you learn about his life, you can see parallels a lot. And I think he's, you know, he's just trying to sort of like focus on the music, which I get, but I think he's probably putting a little bit more effort into them than he pretends. Right? I, I well, think so too. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, um i think as well that might be him kind of playing into this like grunge imagery right because i think you know nirvana is the quintessential grunge band you know they're the identity that then thrust forward into like what we know as like grunge music today and even like i hate to say it but post grunge which is the worst yeah aka nickelback yeah but you know they obviously started a huge movement and i think that a lot of that was because not only the music itself, but the whole identity and the whole identity fit into, you know, creating this worldview that was so important in the nineties and so necessary in the nineties. Yeah. And I think part of it is uh, like Kurt Cobain, like 
wanting to distance himself from like the fame and sort of like the the great man imagery yeah. that like still surrounds him and like I was obsessed with when I was younger uh, because <coughs> pardon me it it's sort of it's almost like I- ironic and a little sad that like Kurt Cobain who like at every moment would try to like he'd put his like political beliefs in front of himself he like uh in uh the liner notes uh for this album i didn't read it because it's a it was a thousand word essay uh but uh he talks a lot about like other punk bands and like girl punk bands that he really likes more so than anything else anything that's actually on the record uh because he's he was always trying to uh sort of distance himself and take himself out of the spotlight uh in a way um and now, of course, Nirvana is revered as one of the greatest and most influential groups of all time, uh, despite him, you know, maybe not wanting that at all. Something that's interesting I found about the liner notes <clears throat> is there's a section or several sections in there about toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, like, has been a hot button issue for the last four or five years in, you know, the modern day zeitgeist. And the fact that this guy was trying to make that something that should be paid more attention to uh and never really got paid attention it just became a a part of his like alternative attitude um is a real shame because you know as a musician and if you have a voice especially when you're that big you probably want to get your messages across uh if you think it's going to be for the betterment of the world and you know with a lot of uh, songwriters from that era, they were, there's a lot of depressing lyrics. This is the case with Nirvana, too. And, uh, you know, he ended up taking his own life. And there's been several other lyricists from that era that ended up doing the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just a lot of dissatisfaction with the status quo, unfortunately. I think that's these are I love that the liner notes are brought up in his Kurt's sort of politics because the band certainly has on the surface level this clear anti-sexist pro-feminist message which is influenced clearly by the riot girl movement through courtney love through many of their friends who were part of the riot girl movement in the 90s but i think if we dig we find kurt's uh, gender politics are a little more complicated and uh, he if folks might know that in when kurt and courtney were having their kid there was a vanity fair article that basically it was like a hack job that basically accused courtney of being on heroin while she was having the child Kurt flipped out, left some pretty gross messages. Lynn Hirschberger, I think, was the the journalist. Some pretty gross sexist messages on her voicemail. Mm. And, like, so you have this, uh, the Michael Azarad, who wrote Come As You Are, which is the official biography of Nirvana, basically says, um, it's funny that, that Kurt was always railing against sexism and maybe he was trying to sort of compensate for something he's hiding in himself, which I thought was a good observation because, you know, I always, like, felt like, yeah, this guy is the best because he's such a... He's a committed anti-racist, you know, and it was, and he's a pro-feminist, and I thought this was great. But then, as I dug deeper, I was like, he's a complicated man, yeah, um, as we all are. And that I just, I kind of like that the full story is a little bit more, a um, little bit more complicated, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and like I, I wish I knew more about like the feminist scene in the '90s, especially like the the music feminist scene, because uh, like in my research for this episode. I came across like a number of articles that called Kurt Cobain like the greatest feminist musician of the '90s or like of all time. I was like, I don't, I don't know if we should be calling a dude the greatest <laughs> feminist anything, really. Yeah, where did he, where did he learn this? You know, yeah, where, and <laughs> exactly you know, like "Smells Like Teen Spirit" was was named that song was named by Kathleen Hanna, 
Is that mm-hmm. who it was? I think so, right? Because she wrote it. They had like an old apartment in the mythology as she spray painted it or wrote it in lipstick on the wall. Kurt smells like teen spirit. He didn't know that teen spirit was a deodorant. He thought it was just some poetic sort of slogan. <laughs> yeah. He used it. But she's one of the great feminist uh, punk rockers of, of that time and still now. And, and so like, that's funny that they say that instead of, you know, naming her, name something from Babes in Toyland or L7 or one of these great riot girl bands, right? Like Yeah. No, it, it's... Again, like the against uh, Kurt's own wishes in a lot of ways, like Nirvana looms larger yeah. than all of the things that he was interested in. But yeah, uh, on on that topic of uh, of uh, Kurt's feminism, should we move to uh, what's the song? Been a son. Been a son. Yeah. Excellent. So um, I know, like this this song. Uh, is all about how uh, some girl's parents wish that she was a boy because, mm-hmm. um, you know, folks of, of misogyny, we, we hate <laughs> to see it. Uh, and did, did anyone else have anything? Uh, he, co- he commonly liked to write, it seems, from like other, like a character's perspective. You know, so this one seems to be like, Polly is also a very complicated song yeah. from a complicated perspective from a story he read in the paper. But this one, again, he's like trying to almost like get inside the mind of somebody in order to understand what the hell's going on in there. Like, why would they feel this way? Or why would they Why would they want this? And him himself had tons of problems with his old man. And so I think he's less like parental uh, child things, uh, dynamics pop up in a lot of his songs. Yeah. Yeah, and like uh, especially like comparing this song to Polly is interesting because they're both from the perspective of a like a figure of authority in a sense, mm. uh, or like a figure of, of that can exert power over their violence. Uh, yeah. yeah, and violence uh, against a, a woman, mm-hmm. but never we never get the woman's perspective. It's always from the perspective of the person inflicting mm-hmm. the the violence or what have you, and I, that's. Interesting. I don't know whether Kurt uh, sort of saw himself that way or like thought that this was uh, because I know he talked a lot about uh, trying to like he has uh, all these like really like angry, heavy songs. uh, And he talked about trying to like sort of sneak like feminist uh, messaging uh, and like anti-racist messaging into songs that would be liked by, you know, sort of meathead white dudes like me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You never struck me as a meathead, Dean, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, well, you're missing you. a few characteristics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And like, I'd like, so I like the idea of, was it catharsis for him to try and explore that perspective? Or was he reluctant to write from the perspective of a woman simply because that would be a weird dynamic? Or what, you know, what the, heck, what the heck is he doing? Either mm-hmm. way, it produces this strange, unique uh, piece of music. Yeah, I'm wondering if uh, someone wants to maybe give some background about the song Polly, because I think it's got some interesting history, and I'd be interested to hear more. Sure. I mean, the only thing I know is, uh, I haven't read up on this in a long time, I'm just sort of relying on memory, but I know he read a story um, about a case in Tacoma, Washington, I think, where a man had captured um, a woman and tortured her. And she was a 14-year-old girl who was coming back okay. from a. T- uh, she was coming back from a concert at a venue that Kurt had performed at oh, multiple times before. Okay. So yeah. it's even more personal. So she ended up. I don't know how long she was held captive, but she got away from the guy. And I think Kurt's spin was this idea that the 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 captor had the victim had tricked the perpetrator or something to get away. Mm-hmm. So. 
Um, but I've always wondered when you know that's a song that's an acoustic song on that album. It stands out because it's one of the two really slower songs, that and something in the way. Oh, never mind. And I've always just wondered. I wanted to know more about why he wanted to write. Because as a songwriter myself, that's not a subject I would touch. You Never. Know? I just feel oh, like no. I, I can't, there's no way I could ever write a song that does any justice by, you know, singing about it. So what what was his perspective in wanting to, what was his motive, right? Yeah, well, it's interesting too to note that uh, it seemed that Kurt Copain was very like anti-sexual assault in all forms um, and he had his benefit for it as well. Um or no, Nirvana had a benefit for it. Mm-hmm. I think this was after Kurt Cobain had uh, passed, but um, that kind of seems to come up in a lot of his writings. Uh, and it's really interesting because I don't think you see that kind of topic being tackled so much in popular music these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I think first off, because it's, I don't, I don't want to say this as a broad overarching statement, um, but I think I have to for this discussion. But, you know, I think that, we've started to take sexual assault so much more seriously um, and even just the language we use around it and how it's discussed. Um, and I think it's made it so that nobody wants to touch it. But clearly, Kurt Cobain had no fear of talking about this, mm. you know, which is very interesting. I mm-hmm. I think, too, comparing the uh, Nevermind version of Polly and then this, uh, I think this was also a radio session. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Is interesting because, like, Polly... Uh, like on Nevermind, as you said, is really slow uh, and almost like it makes you look at the lyrics and look at what is happening Mm -hmm. uh, and like sort of horrifies you uh, that way. Well, uh, in this uh, BBC session that they uh, have on uh, on incesticide, uh, it's more it's almost like like a it's much quicker, like the the song. the tempo's much much quicker but he almost sings in like a monotone the whole time Mm -hmm. and for me it's it's almost like he's uh demonstrating how these sorts of stories were so were so overwhelmed and awash with them that it is like monotonous to us that like if we weren't paying attention we wouldn't even know what he's singing about and it's over so quickly that's interesting man i never thought of that it's funny because when i was a, a teenager we my friends and i you know, we were really interested in Polly. What is this about? We're just trying to like learn about it. And then when Incesticide, we listened to that, we we're like, this is a, this is a bad version of this song. But then they came up with a After Kurt's Death from the Muddy Banks of the Wishkaw, which was a live album. And the version of Polly on that, he screams the last verse. And it just brings this, um, I mean, his screaming voice is amazing, the way he can like move, uh, sort of move his voice. But that emphasis of that exclamation point in the last verse just brings a raw emotion to it that probably should be there in the first place so it's like i like that you have that perspective on the incesticide version because i always thought that it was an appropriate version for that compared to the other two but i like you reading into it makes it a little more interesting i think it'd be interesting to just talk about um the format of this album because i think uh I don't know about you guys, but normally when I see an album and there's, you know, live radio sessions, they're usually at the end of the album. And I thought it was really interesting. It's just like smack dab in the middle. There's no like, I don't know. Do you think there's a rhyme or reason to how this album is put together? Do you think it's just kind of thrown together? That's a really good question. I wish I had known more about this Um, because I know some of them. Let me see here. So some of the songs were from a previous uh, session with Butch Vig uh, in 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 the Midwest somewhere around Wisconsin before Nevermind came out. I know the band went and did some sessions with him. 
And so these were like a prep session for Nevermind. So I, I, I don't think they, I wonder if they led with those. Um, There's a couple of songs too that were from like their first demo session. Right. As well. Like Arrow Zeppelin's one of those songs. I know that. Yeah. It seems to be just thrown together willy nilly, right? Yeah. Like, I suppose they didn't really care. They were a huge band. They were like, let's just put this stuff out and... You know, I mean, that's how I would look at it. I mean, yeah. that's how I look at music And that now. just, that further adds to their cred of being like <laughs> grunge kids who don't really care. Yeah, and not caring is still really cool. Yeah. It was yeah. cool in the 90s and it's cool now. Well, I guess it depends what it is. <laughs> but like, for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess the emphasis too, like on the end is like aneurysm. Why not put that first if you really want to come in with a bang? But it's kind of cool that it ends with that mm-hmm. bang instead. Yeah, oh, for sure. And uh, what I also... You know, just a side note, I don't know if this affected it at all, but I know um, they had to buy all of these songs from their original label. What was it called? Sub Pop. Sub Pop. You guys are on it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They had to buy this from their original label for, it was like a six-figure amount, which was actually pretty low. Um, And they were kind of told, okay, but you have to do it by this date. Uh, so I wonder if maybe some of it was just them being like, oh, whatever. All right, like just throw it out. Like we have to have this done. Be right, Steph, because... I remember reading at some point that Sub Pop actually intended to do a release of unreleased, officially unreleased um, Nirvana tracks. Yeah. And it was originally going to be called Cash Cow. Yeah. yeah. Like, ironically. <laughs> and I think that just shows the, the um, nonchalant, lack of caring nature for maybe how the, if we are correct, the, how the track listing was assembled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's I, a good observation, totally. I like thinking about that, in especially in the frame of, like, I've definitely touched on this in, on the show before, but how, like, I view, like, sort of Gen X culture as primarily, not primarily, but a major facet, the first thing that comes to mind for me uh, is the obsession with authenticity mm. uh, and not selling out. Mm. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you don't want to, like, sell out. You want to just do art that's real and true to you. Yeah. Uh, and if you go with, like, some major label, then they're going to, like, muddle with your sound and it's not going to be you anymore. <laughs> uh, and you would have s- sold your soul. Uh, and then, like, Nirvana, uh, you know. Accused does of it many times. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and then, like, with things like Cash Cow, like, they're, like, openly, like, saying, yeah, we're selling out. We're getting a lot of money. Uh, and that that is the plan here. I love the generation discussion because, you know, I'm a Xennial technically. So I was born in 81. So I'm right on the cusp of Gen X millennial. So I never know what the heck I am. But (laughs) that that idea of authenticity not selling out was so intense as a teenager with us. Mm -hmm. I got so caught up in that that I missed out on a lot of good music, actually, that I had to go back to in my 20s. But like I was so caught up in like not selling out. Like you can't sell out, man. Even though Nirvana signed to David Geffen, right? But Kurt still went on the Rolling Stones and put like major labels still suck on his t-shirt. This weird (laughs) contradiction, right? Like, and I just, I, I, yeah, it's so, it's so, and you know, as as time went on, I was like the hell with it, you know, person's got to make money, you know? So like that sellout thing though was so intense at that time that that really puts the Gen X back in me, which I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but. (laughs) Going back to the whole Buddhism aspect of Nirvana, like in Buddhism, Sure, you want to achieve nirvana, but the way you achieve nirvana is by living a balanced life. Mm. You never want to lean too heavily in uh, either direction on any subject or topic. And, you know, maybe, maybe we, uh, you know, Kurt Cobain and nirvana in general felt like that when they were doing that. They were saying, yeah, major labels, 
suck, but we're going to sign with this guy because maybe, well, I guess the buyout, they weren't really that involved in the buyout, so maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I don't know. There's a, there's That's a, the whole fun of this show. <laughs> we we just read, we read way, way too much too into far. stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm sure if these artists ever like tune in and listen, they're like, "What are you guys talking about?" I don't about? think that we have any difficulty ever. for this one. <laughs> no, yeah, On that's that true. <laughs> Their relationship with money was strange, though. I was watching an interview uh, from '93 uh, last week, and the MTV interviewer asked them how much money. Well, they were saying, "Do you know that some people charge fifty dollars a ticket for a show?" And they were the band was like, "What?" Uh, they were saying Madonna at the time charged that. And then they asked, what do we charge per show? And they had like some suit in the background who knew. And he said, 17 bucks. And they were like, wow, okay. And they're like, how much of that do we make? And they said, the guy in the back, the unknown suit was like 25% between the three of you. And then they were doing some calculating and they, Chris realized, holy, I'm, I can make $10,000 per show. That's what I'm making. And if they were being genuine, I kind of like that they had no clue. Yeah. They're just sort of in their 20s going about like, well, I don't know. And, you know, like, <laughs> that's a lot of money, man. Like, these are rich people now. Like, so I don't know if they, how much were they really thinking about what the major label meant apart from, because they always talk about in interviews, distribution and getting their music out there. I'm sure they must have known it was going to make them rich once it hit, but... Yeah, like the most fantastic part about that story is the idea that a $50 concert ticket was expensive. In 1993, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, Yeah, you could go see the top grunge band in the world. The biggest band, period. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? Oh, man. Now when a concert's 17 bucks, I'm like, sweet. I don't even have to think about it. I'm there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, do we want to talk about Aero Zeppelin yes, a little bit? Because uh, I, I found this song uh, very, very interesting. I really like the title. Aero Zeppelin is a fantastic <laughs> title. Yeah. Um, and uh, from what I read up about this, um, this song, it's not so much uh, a critique of Aerosmith or Led Zeppelin, but of bands that want to sound like them. Uh, which, is like, the, for me, I think this is like a classic... Um, you know, local music scene song that you'd put out, just criticizing the other bands in the local music scene yeah. of <laughs> sounding too derivative. I mm-hmm. like that. That's charming to me. I like that. Uh, but I think it's also interesting because, uh, again, in like a lot of like essays and think pieces that I've read about Nirvana, uh, like they consider Nirvana like the the final nail in the coffin for like hair metal mm. and for like. Um, boomer dominate boomers dominating the music scene like it was all boomers deciding what was popular and what was cool up until nirvana and then nirvana was solely like the gen x band Mm -hmm. uh so like them having a song uh dedicated to at least in the eyes of music credits credits the uh the style of music that they killed uh is interesting but yeah it's also something when the song was written i feel like it's still relevant how many i call them zeppelin likes and a lot of people also call them zeppelin likes i can think of five zeppelin likes yeah well greta have, van fleet yeah that have Classic. come out wolf mother being another one yeah like, there's several that i can think of right now that have came out since hmm. this song was released to the public yeah, yeah that's but it true. works though right? it does like, yeah if that's what people want to hear People love it. And I'm sure, okay, I, I'm not a musician myself. Like, I, I can play s- instruments, but I'm not a musician. But 
looking at bands that are playing this kind of music on stage, they look like they're having a blast. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I'm sure they're just living their best life. So, like, I mean, on one hand, it's like, yeah, be a bit more original. But on the other hand, yeah. it's like, all right, yeah, you look mm-hmm. like you're having fun. This, and you're this, making a ton of money. This is a non sequitur, but uh, have you read the Pitchfork review for Greta Van Fleet's uh, yes. debut album? Yes. No. <laughs> so, it, it tell was me more, not tell me more. It is polite. Oh, God, oh. it is the meanest thing I've wow. ever read in my life. But my favorite, uh, my favorite quote from it was uh, Greta Van Fleet, uh, sounds like a, a band that smoked a bunch of weed and then recorded an album in the time it took the cops to get there after they called the cops on themselves. Uh, <laughs> that's so weird. That is the best line I've so, heard. So, so, so mean. I think I like that, Steph, because like, I agree. Like, I may not like the music of some band that seems like generic rock, but I think they are having a good time. And the few times I've been part of a band where I played a show that's like busy, which is not many times, but I've done it. <laughs> and you feel like a god. It's unbelievable, the rush. It's like drugs, man. It's and pretty so, sweet. Yeah. yeah. And so like... There's another one, Rush. It's a, well, Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally great example. So like, yeah, I dig it, man. Like if you're able to do it, then what a, what a life to live. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Also, just a side note, I think there's two different things you can t- take away from music. And, and from this kind of lens, you can have like just having a good time. And that's your main priority. And just have like having the best time you can. Mm-hmm regardless if you're the artist or the person consuming the music and you have the other side of the fence was like i want to make something unique or or not even just unique but distinct and original and to be honest if people are going to be hard on bands like greta van fleet every piece of art ever is a derivative work mm-hmm. of something no oh, matter yeah. what way you look at listen it. back to uh episode one featuring dan mangan where we get in extensively to this oh god yeah that's yeah. that's all that album's about is mm-hmm. a- am i unique enough yeah yeah because like I, I don't know if you guys tuned into our first episode mm-hmm. but we we talked a lot about you know the merits of art inspired by other people right and like where the boundaries between like inspiration versus just yeah being a derivative of it are right and like how do you separate that and as a listener does it matter you know um because like we were saying you know like you can still enjoy it you know obviously if i were to list off my favorite bands they're all going to kind of be similar to one another because Mm -hmm. i like a certain style of music but does that get old after a while true if you dig, dig deep enough you'll find with any artist yeah like you'll find some derivative stuff in there right mm-hmm. on top of that how many times when you see a, a new artist who is making waves or even just locally is doing well and people are going to see them someone will ask them oh what do they sound like and you can go you can go the <laughs> genre route and be like well they're a rock band or yeah. blah 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 <laughs> or they're they're like a they're a hip-hop group and this and that usually it's Oh yeah, it sounds like Dr. Dre with like a little bit of Miles Davis in there, and that's how that's how we describe art. That. Yeah, that's how we describe art is based on like other things that it sounds inspired by, at some in some way, shape, or form. And Nirvana's not you know no exception. Kurt often said, "I'm just ripping off the Pixies." I think that was a great quote. And if you listen to yeah. the song "You Mass" by the Pixies. There's a little part in the middle that is the basically the exact riff of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Really? Yeah, totally. And there's yeah. Come As You Are. There's two uh, 80s songs. Like, I wish I could remember the names of them, but that it's almost identical to wow. both of those. And that might not be on purpose. It just might have been in his yeah. subconscious. But. Well, then we could go even deeper and just everything's a ripoff of Pachelbel's canon, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. Or a West African work song, right? Yeah. You know? yep. Oh, man.
Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, the moral of that story is we are super uncreative. Uh, (laughs) Even the creatives are not super creative. (laughs) Yeah. There's nothing nothing wrong with being inspired and having emotion about other art and trying to create something that does it justice or is just like something you feel is like a way music is all emotion it's it's just all about describing how you feel mm-hmm. even if it's instrumental yeah it's the same thing true that yeah so then how how do you guys feel about this song in light of that right you know because the whole thing is kind of pointing out these repetitive bands you know and i also think dean said it's not really critical of bands like zeppelin because obviously we can say that nirvana in whether they would admit it or not were inspired by zeppelin pretty mm-hmm. much every rock band that came after zeppelin was in some way inspired by <laughs> yeah. them yeah. and i i think like uh cobain himself like said like uh this song is not about aerosmith or led zeppelin it's about like lots of other bands it's about nirvana like we're like we are also trying to <coughs> like as he says uh, uh all the kids will eat it up if it's packaged properly mm-hmm. like we're just trying to put out a product uh based on what has already been successful I think it's good because it gets it gets the listener thinking about what they're listening to instead of just sort of radio pop song. That's a cool song. I think about like, why do I like this song? Or why do I like that song? Or what what's out there that's not... My buddy and I always get in this conversation. What is out there that I'm not hearing? And how do I access that, you know, to get around algorithms nowadays with, you know, apps and whatnot? How do I find the stuff that's not, quote, packaged properly? Uh, maybe it because Nirvana's big thing was now we made it big. Everybody listened to uh, 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 Flipper or um, uh, Sholin Knife, I think is one of the bands. I might be saying that wrong, but they, or the Vaselines who they cover on this album mm-hmm. or the Meat Puppets or whatever. They're always like, find the band that you don't know. And I kind of like that. It's like, uh, it encourages the curiosity of the, the listener. Yeah. yeah. If you want to get past algorithms, uh, and this has been the case kind of since digital music has kind of come out, but you have to be, an investigative journalist yeah, it's <laughs> for work man. what music yeah. you want to listen to. Yeah, even just mm-hmm. like running like indie wake up call uh, on CFRC. Like I put in hours looking for new music just because I don't want to play another national song. Yeah. I will still play the national song <laughs> though. But I do try to do other things as well. Yeah. Yeah, I find it's really hard because uh I think there's been points in my life where yeah, you're right. Like you have to be an investigative journalist. Like you have to be going on like exclaim or pitchfork and looking at like what's new what just came out uh, and listening to it for yourself otherwise like yeah if you look on spotify or if you just click like next video on youtube you're gonna get exactly what you were just listening to Mm -hmm. yeah so my my music tastes have gotten a lot more narrow over the past few years that i've been too busy to spend time on music review websites oh i feel that (laughs) i feel i'm so out of touch now you know i'm 38 which i know isn't that old but it feels in the world of music and what's new and what's hip, it feels old. And I so like, I love to go back to these old bands that I love and see like, what inspired me in this? And then like, okay, well now what is happening now that has that same ethic or same approach? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's work. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, for our listeners, do you have any suggestions of uh, what someone might like if they like Nirvana's <laughs> Incesticide? Good question. <laughs> we can come back to it. <laughs> I think... Just going off that, um, if you like this kind of music, there's still lots of music that is definitely inspired by it. There's modern punk isn't all, you know, just like, what's the word I'm looking for? Traditional punk anymore um, because 
it's becoming easier and easier to become a basement musician and whatever. You're seeing more artists from various genres implementing digital sounds as well. So mm. I know, I guess Sonic Youth kind of started that, but it's it's just gotten to the point where like it's it's much more common than rare for to hear like digital aspects of um, music in things like punk, metal, um, stuff that you stereotypically associate with not acoustic i guess because they're plugged in instruments but i think you know what i'm trying to say yeah yeah. no i get i get your vibe um i think something that i would uh some uh, a genre that i've been kind of slowly getting into which i found really interesting and i think upon first discussion and maybe you guys will disagree with me this is not a band that you would necessarily associate with like grunge music um but i've been really getting into bubblegum pop and bubblegum grunge so um one band is that i'm really into lately is charlie bliss and i think uh i can maybe put them on if you want to give them a listen at all but you know you've got this kind of like you can tell that they're inspired by this grunge music but they're still very like you take this almost like garage rock grungy kind of filtered sound with this like crazy strong female vocalist on top and i've been loving that um, but I think it's really interesting because like when I saw them, they opened for pup who's a punk band, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's really interesting to kind of see how these genres blend when you don't think they would. Uh, I just think that, yeah, like if we get into that deep dive of talking about bands who inspire, you know, there's, there's just so much you can run off from that, that like go beyond just like the typical genres we would normally look at. Right. Cause mm-hmm. like, even so, if you do a quick search of like Nirvana, um, one of the things that comes up is that they inspired the post grunge movement, which is Nickelback, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like we were yeah, just whole, saying, whole bunch of bands, you know, three, and you wouldn't listen to Nickelback and be like, oh yeah, Nickelback, Nirvana, same thing, like at all. <laughs> you know, it's, I read an article some years ago when Nickelback just sort of started to hit the mainstream and it was some jerk who was writing and saying like, if someone were to listen to Nirvana now, they would just be like, oh, this sounds like Nickelback, which kind of got me angry at first but then i was like oh i get it you know it's anytime there's a big movement uh, of music there's this runoff afterwards this kind of gross greasy runoff that happens Mm -hmm. which is the post version of that but if you really do like listen to chad krueger's vocals his vocal stylings there is something to be there's something connected with kurtz Uh, i don't think he's as good a vocalist or even remotely as good a lyricist or musician but there is a element that's there and so when you know when nickelback comes on the radio i don't always turn the station i'll admit it um there's (laughs) a couple songs where i'm like fine fine Um, i can deal uh, with this maybe we shouldn't have invited (laughs) yeah it also depends on the the like moment in time too because when nickelback started they they didn't know they were going to be this like that's right packageable band they were they took out loans from their parents and banks to record some of these albums that they started with they were just risking it because they wanted to do it they Mm -hmm. didn't know that they're going to be rich and then after the albums that came after (laughs) you kind of do have less respect for it because it looks like they're trying to be they're just pumping in uh, a formula like oh, yeah. into well, an equation. Oh yeah, what was that song, Rockstar or something? Yeah, that was. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, like that was terrible. just the most like quintessential like "Look at me, I'm rich and famous" mm-hmm. song, and mm-hmm. it like it didn't even pretend like it wasn't, which I can at least respect that. But yeah, I should. I want to clarify my point. I'm <laughs> saying like there's an element in 
that, and I would agree about the early music, there's an element in that where I can kind of see the kernel still, even though the end product isn't, you know, what I like, mm-hmm. but there's a little thing inside there where I'm like, okay, I get what you're trying to do here. And, you know, so I, I know I'm just saying all the hate on Nickelback, not all of it is warranted, I feel, but, you know, they are the packaged properly band, I suppose, at the end of the day, but... Yeah. Do I don't own any of their records. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, you're redeemed. <laughs> you're excused. Uh, do you want to hear my theory about Nirvana and the cultural bubbles of the 90s? Yes, please. Uh, so I, I came acro- across this quote. Uh, in 1992, John Pirellis of the New York Times reported that Nirvana's breakthrough had made other had made others in the alternative scene impatient for achieving similar success, noting, suddenly all bets are off. No one, on, uh, no one has the inside track on which of the dozens, perhaps hundreds, of ornery, abstruse, unkempt bands might be making the next appeal uh, to mall-walking millions. <laughs> uh, so um, this led to like a search of like all these record companies were going to like all these like crappy bars uh to try to find the next nirvana uh like to pluck out of obscurity and you Mm -hmm. know make millions and millions off of and that sort of that ends with um nickelback like that that is like the the cycle complete right uh but this happened at least through my eyes all the time in the 90s like these uh like sort of niche subcultures that uh speculators uh and like wall street dudes uh like found like oh there's money to be made in this uh and then like inflated it inflated it until it burst like there was the dot-com bubble <laughs> of like the early 2000s but there's also baseball cards and trading cards i don't like do you guys remember this was like a oh, big yeah. thing uh like it used to be like a game for children yeah. uh until people are like oh i can make money off of this um which led to um all these baseball card companies being like, oh, if we make special editions, we can sell so much more of them because people will be like, oh, it's a special. It's like super hollow foil or like it's an old dude or whoever. Uh, and then again, creating this bubble that bursts. The exact same thing happened in 90s comics with like Frank Miller's like uh, Dark Knight Rises and then all of these like superhero like deaths and weddings and like special editions because <laughs> they knew they would make a ton of money off of them. Uh, and I like... This theory isn't complete yet, but, like, I'm trying to create a unified theory of, like, 90s speculators just ruining cool subcultures <laughs> uh, and just, like, completely, like, sucking any soul or meaning out of them. It was a th- it was absolutely a thing. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. Uh, JR, you, you might have seen this on television, but there was a product, and there was lots of products like this, and it was just marketed towards the whole kind of, like, apathetic culture of like not caring it was called okay juice <laughs> and it, it was like i have a friend who who showed me this ad because he thought it was hilarious and nice. it was like this is why i i hate the early 90s and uh it's just like this pop or juice or something and it was just marketed towards people who liked the grunge scene and that type of <laughs> you know style and it's like yeah it's okay i guess Man. Yeah, but I mean, that's even going back to like my earlier topic about um, Nirvana wasn't just a music style. It was an identity, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, they weren't just promoting their musical, like their music albums. They were promoting this lifestyle, this like, you know, political worldview, right? And like, you can't separate that from most music. But I think with Nirvana, especially because they were this subculture, you know, and I think there's a lot we can talk about with this like idea of subculture because like your theory is not far off from what like 
actual scholars talk about with subculture theory because yeah dean you're a genius that's right (laughs) Um, but you know i like i've dealt with this in some of my like masters where we look at um subculture theory in the sense that a lot of these what has become mainstream culture started as these subcultures that that was then commodified more right Mm -hmm. and like it has always been seen to be cooler to be part of the subculture so there's this cycle right of like you know this no-name subculture that's like exclusive whatever and then the more exclusive it is and then the more people join the more it gets commodified and then becomes like main culture right right and then once it becomes main culture it gets ditched by all the people that were part of the subculture to go into something else and like you can even look at like coachella started off that way and like look at it now and like other music festivals and things like that and it's really interesting to see that cycle and i definitely think that it personally i think that kind of thing started really heavily in like the 70s and 80s when you start getting into like hippie culture and rave culture and opening it up to like grunge and etc right yeah i i agree i would just uh emphasize that at least in my eyes the reason that uh the subculture is abandoned by like the mainstay and the diehard fans for me like i don't think it's as much oh there's too many people into this now now it's mainstream i don't like like that hipster bs uh for me it's just like the very fact that uh, it is being commodified and so much capital is being injected into this subculture that... Well, it ruins like, the authenticity y- of it. Yeah, like th- it, things just become devoid of meaning. Yeah. 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 And like in trying to appeal to more and more people, you lose that like sort of hard scrabble, like real thing. But isn't that just like the hipster thing you just condemned? No, in it's just different. more eloquent wording. No. Well, <laughs> look at, if we look at Nirvana, like a personal experience, the the in in hindsight, I wouldn't have described it this way when I was a teenager. I identified with this band because it was a white guy from a working class place that was like industrial, uh, kind of uh, resource industrial that completely who kind of came from a divorced family that de- describes me to a T. That's why I liked him. That's why when he screamed, I felt like he was screaming for me. So I get that, Dean. I see like there's an I, sometimes there's an identifier. There's something you feel you identify with, but once it's been commodified to a certain extent, the meaning gets lost. What does this thing stand for now? It stands for capital. Yeah, uh, and and this will happen to everything you love forever. Yeah. Well, and I think it's hard to necessarily put this into perspective of Nirvana because their career was so short, mm-hmm. right? Like they have what you were saying like three lps you know so i think you can even though look at this of like dave Grohl's career right like dave Mm -hmm. Grohl, like from my perspective like the foo fighters aren't really taken that seriously (laughs) and you know it's almost like this process has come full circle just through that lens you know where dave Grohl is maybe what nirvana could have ended up being Mm mm-hmm Maybe not quite as much because I think Kurt Cobain was a far better artist. But, you know, that kind of idea of like what would have happened if Nirvana had kept going and then become, you know. Old man music. Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, like I correct me if I'm wrong, but I sort of see Dave Grohl now as like the rock and roll guy. Like if you need like, you know, you're doing an award show or some music thing. You're like, oh, we need like rock and roll. Who's the one person who does (laughs) rock and roll now? It's Mm -hmm. Dave Grohl. That's it. Yeah, he's a grand. He's like a grandfather. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. Oh, man. This is making me feel kind of old. I'm not old. (laughs) I'm still... This is related but unrelated, and I just want to talk about it because I don't know if I'll ever get an opportunity with other people. 
uh, to talk about it, but I'm still waiting for that second Them Crooked Vultures album. I've been waiting since the first album came out, and Dave Grohl is a freaking phenomenal drummer. I have not yes. heard oh, yeah. this. Yes, he's the best. It's a, it's a super group project with uh, Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age, John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin, and Dave Grohl. And, wow. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, Alan Johannes from like various projects from Red Hot Chili Peppers to uh, Chris Cornell solo stuff to like a whole bunch of nineties crap. Yeah, that it's was, a really it's a really cool project. That would be great too. Maybe to you'll hear have that. to listen to that on a on a listening oh, yeah. party sometime. I'll show up for that. It yeah. is funny <laughs> to look at Grohl's career, like what's happened with the rest of the band. You know, the focus always goes to Kurt, obviously, because he's a hell of a lot more interesting. But, you know, Dave has made a he somehow made a kind of a post grunge career. And I think the Foo Fighters have some great songs, mostly in the oh, early sure. part of their career. But um, he's managed to done he's done so many projects. He's drummed for so many bands. Uh, he drummed for Queens of the Stone Age, so many other. So he's managed to still sort of. But Chris Novoselic, the bassist, who was Kurt's best friend, who grew up in Aberdeen with him, who started a band with him. Most people probably don't know what he's up to, although he just made the news recently. Uh, because he's become a libertarian, and he was saying how Trump has done a good job at talking about the the Black Lives Matter situation. Oh no, which is not Wait, surprising what? to me. Yeah, yeah. So, so is he always like that? No, his I think I think his pol- his gender politics are still pretty good, but something's happened here where he's become a libertarian over the last ten years, and I've been sort of watching it happen. Uh, it's unfortunate in my opinion, but. Um, but yeah, he sort of, Trump did a speech and he said something to the effect of, I think I appreciate his stern and direct approach, right? Um, so uh, people got angry over that, but I, I am, I'm, I'm so unfortunate that the guy who I saw as having probably maybe the best politics in the band in the nineties now has sort of gone this, this particular way. This is why you can't think about politics for longer than like two, three years. You have to get all your opinions in that time and then stop thinking about it because otherwise your brain will just go to these weird places. (laughs) Not worth it. Yeah. That's how it works. Yeah. (laughs) This is why everyone who studies like political science goes crazy. I'm pretty sure. Is that right? Uh, Yeah. Well, I feel that's, I did my undergrad in that. I I don't feel well all the time mentally. I'll tell you Exactly. But Chris, although he did some work in other bands, most people probably don't know the bands that he's played in, right? They were these obscure, kind of interesting, but um, but so it's an interesting dynamic of how when that the main driving force of that band leaves, what happens to the rest of the the group after a short career? The band was on the verge of breaking up. Rumor has it anyway before Kurt's death. But oh yeah, no, yeah, there's there's no way they would have they would have survived. There's um, it's interesting to talk about nirvana because well you know there's other bands that kind of had key members pass away maybe not when they were to the same fame point of nirvana but when they were on the up and up or even on the way back down in some cases but uh, we saw a lot of bands from the 90s grunge peak Mm -hmm. uh do reunion shows uh several times in the like late 2000s and early 2010s and uh Kurt Cobain, if he was still alive, I don't, you know, maybe he would have evolved as a person. He would be very different from where he was. But Kurt, as we knew him, absolutely would not have done a reunion show for any amount of money. (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting, too. And Grohl put out that documentary a few years ago called Sound City. Yeah, that was great. Where he collaborates, a bunch of people collaborate who recorded at Sound City. And uh, he does the reunion with Chris Novoselic and Pat Smear, who was the later guitarist uh, in Nirvana. 
um, second guitarist, and then they get Paul McCartney to sing on a track. And I got to admit, when I heard that track, the rhythm rhythm section of that track is awesome. And I thought Paul did a pretty good job, but it really like it gave me like goosebumps because I'm like, that's the closest I'd ever get to hearing Nirvana again. And yeah. hey, it's not John Lennon, but I'll take Paul, I guess, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Paul's motto, isn't it? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, John Lennon being the original Kurt Cobain kind of cracks me up. <laughs> oh my god, that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so I want to talk about uh, another song on here, which is "Sliver." Oh, uh, yeah. Which I found interesting uh, because, and like this is sort of we've been dancing around this uh, for a while, I think. But uh, here we have "Sliver," which is a, a song about, like, as Jr. was saying before. Uh, is about um, parental disputes. Uh, it's about a kid who has to go stay with his grandparents and how he doesn't want to be there, and he sort of resents his parents for leaving him there. Um, and it's also got the sort of generational disputes uh, that were seen as, like, the, the key uh, part of Nirvana's popularity is, like, the, that they were of a different generation. And here we are uh, with uh, a song from the perspective of a child uh, yelling at, grandparents mm-hmm. uh it doesn't get more generational than that um <laughs> uh, but the the thing that i'm interested in and uh i i want to like there's tons of think pieces on this but i want to hear what jr has to say is like again nirvana at this point the biggest band in the world and they put out uh this uh incesticide record and like the the second uh track on it where you normally put like you know your biggest single uh, is about a kid whining that he doesn't want to be at his grandmother's. <laughs> and like, how how do how do we square that? Like, what what about like this? Not just this song, but like this band, which has like such esoteric lyrics in a lot of uh, in a lot of their songs. How did they become the biggest? Like, what about this band speaks to that time? There's no way for me to answer this question without speaking from my own just my own experience as a kid, and because I don't want to talk about grandiose ideas, voice of a generation BS. I I hate that stuff. Like for me, it was really about a working class kid kind of angry about the situation he finds himself in and then hearing another guy who's older but seems to come from the same kind of environment screaming about it, being angry about it. It, I think it appeals to youth because of that. There's the angst, if we want to call it angst, for me was like really appealing as a young man. Now as an older man, I kind of chuckle. It's kind of cheesy. And, and, you know, I still appreciate the lyrics and appreciate the art and the music in a different way now than I did then. But I can see that that's what that's what was driving me uh, to to love this band, to be obsessed with them, frankly, for for many years um, was this kind of like just identifying. And so with Sliver, I think, is a great example, because when when we were teenagers, we loved that song. And it really is the single of that album, I guess, uh, because it has a great bass line. It's poppy. Uh, but it's like we, I felt like, yeah, I've been in that situation when I was a kid where I was like um, angry that I was in a place and I was kind of angry about the situation with my parents and stuff. And uh, I just felt like, wow, this feels like it's just down to basics, like down to basic human kind of emotions, you know, and 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 then he yells in it, too, which is excellent. Yeah, <laughs> we love the yelling. for <laughs> sure. I'm a big fan of the yelling. <laughs> the very repetitive yelling. Too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I must say that that's um, that's the one part, and I, I mentioned this in the introduction that I, I'm just not super crazy about with a lot of these songs is just like that repetitiveness to it. And I think I do recognize that's very much personal opinion. There is very much merit to the repetitiveness of this 
um, especially in Kurt Cobain's identity. But yeah, I just listening to this song, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want your grandma to take you home. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get on. <laughs> what do you, can I ask how you feel about the sound? Um, so my former partner is a few years younger than me. And, and when we were first dating, I was, uh, years ago, I was playing Nirvana for her. And I was like, what do you, what does it sound like? She says, it sounds 80s. And it was a real eye-opener for me that like, oh, like this music really does sound kind of eight, especially Nevermind has an 80s feel, late 80s feel to it. Like what is the, what is the, the timbre, the sounds like, how do you feel about that? What you're hearing? It's interesting that you say it's 80s sounding or some like other people might feel it's 80s sounding because I have always felt that 90, 91 less so 92 but also 92 as well it still had that sound um we like to think because we're humans and this is the way we think (laughs) for whatever reason but we like to categorize things with round numbers and say this is when this stuff was going on and when when 90 when 1990 hit january 1st (laughs) everything started to sound Uh, different uh, all right folks we have to make different sounds now (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah the music industry got together and decided which subculture music industry famously loving change because it it is easy when you're working at a radio station and you're trying to describe like what music you're playing or whatever like 70s 80s 90s and today (laughs) so much as a kid (laughs) oh my goodness yeah Um, but that's everything yeah right? every no, station I, I is know, still like 80s you, 90s and now when, and like now is a 20 year span dude <laughs> very true <laughs> but i'm just saying like just because something this was written in the summer of 1990 this song and or recorded i should say not maybe not written so it's not that far off and a lot of recording techniques and sounds and ideas and like the way it was mixed and everything still gonna have some bass in the 80s it's not yeah. that far away yeah, like um, like to Jr's point about like what what does uh, Nirvana sound like? Like for me, Nirvana again like cannot be divorced from Nirvana, the cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So like when I listen to Nevermind or In Utero, I'm like that sounds like Nirvana. <laughs> like there there's there's no other like there are influences to be drawn, and I'm sure like uh, if I listen to this band more often, I would be able to parse that out. But like whenever I hear any of those songs, I'm like, no, that's just what Nirvana sounds like. That's the Nirvana sound. Uh, but this album definitely, uh, I didn't get that feeling. It's, it's I, different. Yeah, right? it, it it does feel and sound different, uh, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I think for me though, um, I think it's because I, you make the categories of music styles in your brain by decades based on certain bands, right? And for me, you know, when I think 80s music, I think more like Guns N' Roses. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think 90s music, I think Nirvana. So then when I hear Nirvana, my brain automatically switches to like, well, this is what 90s music sounded like. And I just kind of leave it at that. Um, so I think it's very different for me that like, maybe it's because I have kind of put Nirvana as the quintessential 90s sound in my mind that mm-hmm. I can't divorce it from that time period, you know? Yeah. Because I would say, like, yes, it does have some similarities to some other, like, famous 80s bands. But, like, again, like I said, when I think 80s, I think, like, Guns N' Roses or, like, yeah. U2 or, like, Bon Jovi. And none of those bands, to me, sound sim- similar enough to Nirvana. Sure. There's an interesting... Um change too in the in the rhythm and the drums i think oh, yeah. people underestimate what dave Grohl brought to this band and when i was you know re-watching the behind this record mtv thing about Nevermind, butch vig talks about how he was trying to get away from that 
like we were hearing in the, in the drums of that um, that band you were playing, um, Charlie Bliss, is that what they're called? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the, the snare was like this kind of tinty, uh, higher pitched, uh, echoey thing, where uh, Butch Vig was trying to get this more thud, this more like booming and lower registered drum. And I think that's something that um, on the next big album in utero um i think they were still trying to maintain that kind of drum sound so i think there is something different in the sonic element of it and i'm really interested in that now as i get older like how the sounds change and stuff so i think the rhythm section really brought something different that made it not 80s you know because that that snare that you hear it in springsteen you hear it in so much rock Mm -hmm. music it's just so overpowering and that goes away it's a little more dampened and like and the, the toms start to play over, which I love. Like, that's oh, the yeah. deep sound, right? Yeah, it's that's interesting a, that really you point, point that out. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought about that before, but you're right. Like, now that I go through my brain on, like, what kind of drum sounds you hear for sure, definitely, like, with the grunge era moving into, like, 2000s, even when you get to more, like, what contemporary, more, like, metal bands sound like, mm. um, it's definitely, yeah, more tom-heavy, more bass-heavy. You don't hear... Well, I mean, even, like, you look at, you know, EDM music, right? Like, everything is so built on that bass sound. You don't mm-hmm. hear that high-pitched snare anymore. And it's the death of the guitar solo, too. Even though Kurt does solos, they're 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 not real solos. They're like, they're just, like, garbled. He's just, yeah. like, playing and having fun and trying to be Sonic Youth. And um, But that's after the... I feel like the 90s was really the death of the guitar solo. Like, Pearl Jam still oh, had man. it, but... Thank goodness it was getting ridiculous. <laughs> oh it God. was true, yeah. like with like I said, how grunge was a reaction to like glam and hair metal. Like, oh my God, some of the solos you'd see from some of those bands. Like, some of it's fun. I will admit, I don't hate all of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I enjoy um, a good guitar solo once <laughs> like, in a while. I really, I, I really enjoy the final countdown. I get pumped <laughs> up when I hear that song. But like, and I think when <laughs> when you said Guns and Roses. Uh, you could see the two different worldviews and even just sounds and everything there. It's, it's like uh, two sides of a coin mm-hmm. in a lot of ways uh, between Axl Rose and, and Kurt Cobain. Uh, oh, they, yeah. they beefed oh, real hard. Yeah. And, um, Did Axl Rose beefed with everyone. Oh, this is true. <laughs> this is true. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, and there's obviously a reason for that, yeah. but, but even just like Slash's whole identity, right? Like that is not even close to what you then get with something like, nirvana no right exactly. like that kind of identity that was put forward you know yeah the open yeah. shirt the guitar is a symbolic of a phallus like that yeah. whole yeah, image yeah. is like you got the two guitar necks going on yeah, yeah. <laughs> god yeah. yeah it's over the top right? yeah i saw guns and roses a few years ago in ottawa wow. um i got free tickets <laughs> was, was this like stage. reunion uh lineup yeah with the original that was pretty cool axel's it voice was, holds pretty, up right oh man it was so cool yeah it was such a blast as much as i like will sit here and like crap on their whole identity being like so over the top it was a fun i show. have many gnr albums <laughs> i <laughs> oh, so fun. i've always I'll, I'll say this i really like velvet revolver i really don't like guns and roses <laughs> Yeah, I like enough. the bands. I, I'm nev- I've never been an Axl Rose guy. I'm not a big fan of his voice. I don't think... His lyrics. I, I've never met someone who's like, yeah, I'm super into Axl Rose. You'd be surprised. Like, I've met so many people that are like, yeah, I'm into Guns N' Roses. But normally when you start... And like, they'll, someone will say I'm super into Slash. But when you start yeah. talking about Axl Rose specifically, I feel like I haven't met too many people there's, that are like, oh yeah, Axl Rose. There's people that just appreciate... Uh, again, we were talking about authenticity. Uh, Axl Rose, I think... Maybe not all the time, but when he was talking about his opinions and stuff and, you know, 
it was very authentic in a lot of ways. That's he, he was tr- being himself uh, for better or for worse. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> Axl Rose, anti-Trump. Oh, funny. Yeah. Wow. Yep. They uh, didn't they release a whole line of merch in response to Trump uh, using their song in a promo video or oh, something? Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. amazing. Yeah. This is just like a month ago. Man, Guns N' Roses officially more woke than Nirvana. Yeah. Interesting. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? Dave Grohl's been quite silent. I'm sure he's liberal enough. But yeah. You know, people grow and change in a lot of different ways. That's right. So, yeah. like I said earlier uh, about Kurt Cobain, he might not if he didn't. If he was still alive, I don't, you'd not be the same person. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, and I think even just the fact that, you know, he clearly internalized a lot of what was happening in the world. You see that in his music and you see it in the fact that he committed suicide, right? Mm -hmm. And so you got to think that if he hadn't, right, like he would have had to find a way to stop internalizing everything that was going on around him. So it'd be really interesting to see like how that process would have shaped out, right? And like what kind of would have come out at the other end of that. Hypotheticals are hard. Oh, yeah. they're so hard. You can go down so many crazy rabbit holes when you start getting into that. Mm-hmm. Are there any other specific songs that people want to talk about? Before? I just want to mention Hairspray Queen just because yeah. of the unorthodox guitar stylings and weird vocals. I just like, it's one of my favorite tunes because it's so off- it's so off in a different direction. I just, I love that about this album where he's just trying to mess with his vocals, play with them. He used to do that live all the time where he maybe gets frustrated playing the song over and over and he messes with the vocals. And I feel like this was one of those weird, strange, uh, but but I love it. You know, it's, it's yeah, unorthodox. It's also interesting because uh, apparently this one was one of the ones that was recorded like in 1988. So at yeah, the very beginning the of the demo. career. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Like his wanting to experiment so much. Mm-hmm. This band, you know, Dean was talking about earlier how like there's a Nirvana sound, but I've always really felt that this band has a pretty big range. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's still it's still like it's not it's a family tree of ranges and subgenres and whatever. But it's uh, it's definitely not like so focused that all the sounds sound or all the songs sound so similar, right? Like when when I was saying like they have a sound, what what I was sort of trying to I wasn't saying that they are like you know define like all of their sound all of their songs like have X Y Z like they're very similar, but more like they loom so large in the culture mm-hmm. that it's it's hard to like divorce them from themselves and pick them apart and find these influences right. at least yeah. like from a casual perspective yeah especially with their chart toppers too yeah, yeah. well yeah. and it was like i was saying about how you know i've kind of pinned nirvana as the quintessential 90s band and you exactly. can't get away from that sound right pearl jam fans everywhere are going oh. <laughs> yeah totally man uh yeah i missed out on pearl Whoops. jam a little bit yeah, I, I really like the the lyrics uh, on this track on uh, Hairspray mm. Queen. Uh, Crisco Loch Ness is just so good. Yeah. I, and like, again, like he talks about how like the lyrics are like sort of like nonsense and garbled. And like that's definitely like. It seems really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he's trying to do that. But like, you know, again, he's throwing us off the scent because there's, there's some, there's a lot of like weird like food and consumption yeah. imagery here yeah it's and like cool. it's like a there's a there's a, like um a lot of he's really into health stuff like you'll see a lot of the art that he did is like um body parts and stuff and in this song too it's like is this is the one where he's talking about like vomiting and like there's like 
you know, bodily fluids and stuff in there. It's like a yeah. weird, some weird conglomeration of health and imagery. And and then also like talking about like witch goddesses and yeah, yeah no, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> that is such a vibe. Well, and even like, yeah, like you were saying, the imagery is just so much in this that, uh, yeah, it, it kind of makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even mm-hmm. just the term hairspray queen, you know, to me, this is, this is grunge. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is where they get the grunge. I think that was his ideology. goal a lot too, yeah. is to make people like, we, JR, you talked about it earlier, like kind of question what, what, what your thoughts are, um, what you're looking for in music that yeah. you want to And what enjoy. you're hearing on the radio. Yeah. Like why, why are they playing this for me? And why, <laughs> why, why does this song have this message? And how did it get there? Yeah. And as I get older, that's my real question now is how did this song get there and that this one didn't? Yeah. How is this getting exposure? <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. So, so overall, I think, um, I don't know. I went into this and, and this is what happens with listening party. And this is why I like it is I went into this kind of being like, oh yeah, this, I don't know anything about this album. I don't know how I feel about it. Um, but now I'm super intrigued and ready to like dive deep into nineties music and grunge ideology and culture. Um, and I think, you know, it's given me a bit more of appreciation for some of the songs uh, on this album. Because at first I was like, yeah, I like aneurysm, but none of the other ones really like stood out to me. But now I want to sit down and, and dive more into it. Yeah. And for me, like choosing uh, Incesticide in particular, like I had never heard of it until you uh, texted me like, mm-hmm. oh, we should do this one. Uh, and uh, hearing this and seeing that that Nirvana is more than just Nevermind. And like... Uh, sort of like you know i don't want to say humanizing but um <laughs> what what not even like demysticizing the band yeah, i guess i would word. say uh and like see- seeing them as musicians who are like rowing and changing uh was very cool and i'm very happy that i listened to this yeah um so i have like i mentioned earlier i've listened to a lot of 90s music and i definitely listened to this maybe three times ever uh, I didn't grow up during this era either, just like you guys. Um, JR has a very different experience with this album than any of us. But it's definitely, I think, kind of a snapshot of, be, especially because of the fact that there's so many raw songs on here and a lot of these were from like the the 88 demo. It's It's kind of a snapshot of like where the grunge scene was going and where it was at certain points in the album, obviously not the whole way through, but it, it really does kind of with Nirvana being the biggest, most popular band of that scene in that era kind of describes where the scene was going and where it was in a lot of ways. Yeah. Cool. I, I like that perspective. Um, I just wanted to point that out. Cause I think, yeah, you're right. There's so much, breath in this single album yeah so thank you for pointing that out and thanks for the invite i feel very appreciative that you know i was able to come and talk about a band that by a long shot has influenced me more than any other band ever and that's it for the rest of my life that will be the band for me so i love chatting about it and hearing all the insights from you three has been awesome so thank you for that yeah no thanks for coming on and you're you're welcome to come anytime (laughs) we're always talking about albums (laughs) yeah so yeah, just to close out, uh, thank you all for listening to Listening Party uh, from CFRC 101.9 FM out of Kingston. 
Uh, you can find us on social media at Listening Party CFRC on Instagram. You can send us an email with all of your thoughts. Um, and if you want to criticize everything that we've just said, we like a good debate sometimes. Yeah. Uh, you can find our email, listeningpartycfrc at gmail.com. Uh, and then on top of that, you can find us on all of your favorite podcast apps. Very exciting. Thank you to CFRC for hosting our podcast. We'll see you next week. Yeah. Bye, folks. Bye.